in this morning on one particular section of this passage. And that is in verse number 20, where it says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's where I want to focus today. So this passage is really talking in Christ, but that has real practical implications for us as believers. That scripture now shows us what God worked in Christ. And the reason we need to grasp this is because it is the same power that is at work in believers today. Last time I left you with the third thing that uh, we Christians are to know, and that's found in verse number 19, it says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's what we ought to know. In fact, it's what God is doing toward us who believe, or another way of translating it, in us who believe, that God is working in us. You and I used to be in spiritual darkness, dead in trespasses and sins, and now our hearts are being flooded with light so we can understand. And the light comes from the scriptures by the power of God's Spirit. And I gave an illustration about using our, our, our night vision scope, which I equated to be the Word of God. And the Word of God is designed to flood your visual range with light so that the eyes may be open more and more to the spiritual knowledge that God has for us in the Word of God. And so, in our present passage, the Holy Spirit wants us to see how God's power is exerted toward believers, how God's power is exerted in believers. And it's really done so in a fourfold manner. Uh, today I'll just look at the first one, and that it's done in Christ's resurrection. It's demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. You know, just, just recently I stood at the, the edge of uh, Niagara Falls, and I was standing there, and I heard a loud roaring sound. And I felt a significant breeze in my face. I began to realize that the roaring sound and the breeze was all produced by the water falling over the falls. It was so powerful, it was moving the trees and the bushes back and forth. Uh, and I began to think, what power that is? And, you know, in 1961, when the Niagara Falls hydroelectric project first went online. It was the largest hydropower facility in the Western world. Today, Niagara is still the largest electricity producer in New York State with a generating capacity of 2.4 gigawatts and a capacity of spilling 375 thousand gallons of water a second and then diverted from Niagara that's diverted from Niagara River through conduits under the city of Niagara and then of course the falls dumps into the Lewiston and the Robert Moses power plants and currently between 50 to 75 percent of Niagara's river flows are diverted to four huge tunnels that arise far up, upstream where the waterfalls are, and then the water spins turbines that powers generators, converting mechanical energy into electrical energy. And as you see the power of that falls and what it does, you say, my, what, what power there is there. It's God's power displayed in his creation that you're seeing there. But there's even greater power that the Lord wants his children to know about in this particular passage. And what we are seeing is what God's power has actually done. And the best way to observe it is by the most, thing, the most unique thing that has ever happened in human history. And the history, really the history of humanity, you may be saying, well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm 
It is actually one great event that has led to another great event, and each event demonstrated God's power. And the first event that demonstrated the power of God was when God's power was exerted in Christ's resurrection. And if you notice in verse number 19, it says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. In verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, again, why is the author saying these things in chapter 1? Because he's setting us up. He's setting us up to actually live the Christian life. He's setting us up to know that you cannot live the Christian life without God's power. Matter of fact, you cannot be saved without God's power. And so therefore, he wants us to know that. But sometimes when we think about or hear about the resurrection, we think about it in just a theoretical, theological way. And we need to think about it like that, but that should lead to a very practical application. Because we could say that, well, I'm saved, and someday I'm going to get resurrected from the grave, and I'm going to live with God forever. But according to Ephesians, that's not his intended purpose, is just to leave us there. He is saying to us, no, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is yours right now in your life. Right now, it's, in, it's yours in your life. And so... That is what the thing, that is the power that God, well, at least where I observe that we don't always catch. We don't always live this. We don't always put this into practice. So let me just step back again and just give you some things about the resurrection. The resurrection is the act of being raised from the dead. It is used in the Bible three different ways. The first way, the word resurrection is uses often, of course, refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happened at Jesus' resurrection is that one of the mo- is one of the most dis- difficult concepts to understand in the Bible. Who can explain the resurrection from the dead? It's very difficult to explain that. However, it is very important to understand Jesus' resurrection because it allows all people to enter into a relationship with God. A second way resurrection is used is to refer to the miracle of returning someone from the dead back to life on earth. In the Old Testament, this happened actually several times when the prophet Elijah raised the boy in 1 Kings, and then Elisha, who took Elijah's place, raised the Shunammite son in 2 Kings. And then when you come to the New Testament... There are a few more examples. Jesus, of course, raised Jairus' daughter. And, of course, the most famous one, Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. And then Peter raised Dorcas in Acts 9. And then Paul raises Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. And even though these people were raised from the dead, they still died sometime later. So this was not equal to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would rise never to die. There is a third way resurrection is used, and it also refers to the end of time when all people will be resurrected to be punished or rewarded based on their belief in Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be a time where there's going to be a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto damnation. And even the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, why does Paul say, in other words, believers should be pitied if there were only earthly value in Christianity? Right? In Paul's day, Christianity often brought a person to persecution, to ostracism from their family, and in many cases to poverty. So there were few tangible benefits from being a Christian in that society. 
It was certainly not a step up the social career ladder. And even more important, however, in, is the fact that if Christ had not been resurrected from the dead, Christians could not be forgiven for their sins and would have no hope of eternal life. So Jesus' resurrection, which is a divine act involving all the three persons of the Trinity, is not just a resuscitation of the physical ruined frame that was taken down from the cross for burial. It was rather a transformation of Jesus' humanity that enabled him to appear, to vanish, to move unseen from one location to another. And of course, it was the creative renewing of this original body that the body that is now Jesus is fully glorified and deathless. It is fully glorified and deathless. So the Son of God in heaven still lives in and through that body and will do so forever. Jesus is coming back in bodily form. He's coming back in his resurrected body. So then Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection as a space uh, time occurrence in history. All four Gospels, if you read them, highlighted, focusing on the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances. Paul regarded the resurrection as indisputable proof that the message about Jesus as the judge and Savior is absolutely true. And then in the book of Acts, which I'd like you to turn there for a minute, in chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Acts insists upon this. In fact, this was the message, and the, when the apostles preached through Acts, this was the message that ruffled feathers, ruffled people's emotions, and people in general, more than anything else, this preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke gives us three facts in Acts about the resurrection. And if you look at chapter 2 in verse number 24, he says this, but God. Now, the fact of God's power is right there in that passage, but God, that small phrase, is packed with the power of God for if it wasn't for this particular phrase, no one would have any hope. And see, only when God enters in can there be any hope for any of us. But we also see in verse 24 that God's power is greater than the grave. It says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. In fact, the Word of God is telling us here that, listen, you thought the grave could hold him, but it, you were wrong, it could not, and God raised him up again. And then it says here, putting an end to the agony of death. That word agony actually is a word that means birth pangs. In other words, when Christ died, death was like, birth pains and he suffered them until God delivered Christ from them by raising him up putting an end to the tension and the power of death to hold him just as a mother who's pregnant has birth pangs somewhere down the line that baby must come out and the word of God is telling us here it was at the point of resurrection that death was put down and of course Satan behind that was put down also and so if you notice in verse number 24 it says this that since it was impossible for him to be held in its what power so we all know and we all have experienced that death has power that no one could overcome uh, only God himself can overcome it and so Christ overcomes death for us in providing us resurrection of the body someday but he also provides power to live our Christian life now so my friends it was not possible for any power could hold Jesus Christ but a second thing 
Second fact in Acts was found in verse number 25. It was the fact of prophecy that God foretold Christ's death and resurrection in the sense where he says in verse 26 and 25, verse 25, for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. You have made known to me the ways, in verse number 28, of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. In other words, King David rested on the hope of the resurrection. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 26, it says in another translation, No wonder my heart is glad, and my tongue shouts in praises. My body rests in hope. He was thinking here about the bodily resurrection, not only of himself, but of the one who would be coming the one who would be representative of David. And it says in verse number 27, he's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah will not be left among the dead, where it says in verse 27, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That Jesus will be entombed as one dead, but no decomposition, putrefaction, or flesh rot would touch the holy body of Jesus while he lay in the grave. See, that is what the Word of God tells us about what happened with him and why his death and resurrection were so incredibly different than any other that came before him. And his was the pinnacle of all resurrections and the first fruits of all who will follow him it also says and a third fact is the fact of exaltation that king david is still in the grave in verse 29 of acts 2 brethren i may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch david that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day in verse 30 and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. And down in verse number 31, we see he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And then in verse 32, notice what it says, this Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses, the power of God to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And that led to his exaltation. In verse number 33, he was exalted to the right hand of God, meaning that Jesus was given the position of special honor and privilege, that he was seated at the right hand of God. That means he has the position of authority, and then he was there uh, in a position of victory, having his footstool. It says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, meaning that he was in a position of victory over his enemies. And that is also a picture of a conquering king who showed their triumph by placing their foot upon the neck of some conquered king. So Jesus will put his foot on the neck of all his enemies. In fact, Ephesians is going to bring that out, but I will not go there today. So this crushing is done with great ease that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was unique in the display of God's power in that it is an active power that has ongoing implications for us today that to recap What I've said is that Jesus' resurrection demonstrated his victory over death, that death could not hold him, meaning that Christ's power was stronger than death itself. Christ was the strong man who went into the, he was the the man who went into the strong man's house and plundered it, meaning that Christ was stronger than 
the strong man. He was stronger than death. He had the power over it. It also means that it vindicated him as righteous. It indicated his divine identity in Romans 1. It led to his ascension and his enthronement and of course to his present heavenly reign. It guarantees to the believer present forgiveness and justification before God and that it also allows us to know that Christ is the first fruits of all who will be raised from the grave. That Christ was raised out of all those who had died and whom remained buried in the earth. That Christ was raised and will raise all saints from the clutches of death. And then there is one implication that I want to highlight. That his resurrection is the, the, really the basis of resurrection life in Christ for the believer is really the point of Ephesians. It was Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verse number 13 that said this, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. So thinking of that, that the, the basis of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ is for all believers right now is the important point. I say this also, that this was truly a display of God's power when he raised Christ from the dead. When all the forces of evil and of hell, when death and the grave were trying to hold him, he was raised by the mighty power of God. Death could not hold him, and he rose triumphant over the grave. It puts, I put all this before you for this particular reason, that God's power in Ephesians chapter 1 is given and shown and demonstrated to us because it is life-giving. God's power is put to us in several different ways. In the book of Ephesians, the first way, if in Ephesians chapter 2, if you notice in verse number 5, when we get there, it says this. It says, even when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. See, he is doing this toward us who believe, in verse number 19. He is doing this in us who believe. Did you ever, did you hear what, what I just said, that the very fact that you and I are believers, if indeed you are a believer, is solely based because of the demonstration of God's power and might in the resurrection. Many things have to be overcome, have to be conquered by the strength of God, by the power of God in order for you and me to become a believer. In other words, I am going back to the fall of man and I am looking at it in this sense that at the fall of man, man did not just get wounded. Man at the fall died and was unable to respond to God whatsoever. He had no power to do so at all whatsoever. And so therefore, it must be the power of God that overcomes every obstacle that you and I would face in order to become a believer. The first one, for example, the first obstacle that we have to face is our own flesh. It says in Romans 8, 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, is saying to us that our minds were darkened and covered with a veil. Not only a veil of sin, but a veil of unbelief. That God had to overcome our flesh. And the only way our flesh could be overcome is by the power of God. Also, the devil had to be overcome. He is real. His power is second only to that of God. 
He is the God of this world. And in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, it is the, the only thing that could overcome the devil and his blindness toward humanity is God's power. God had to overcome that for us. He had to overcome our flesh. But he has to overcome the world, too. The subtle power of worldliness with its lust and its desires that are opposed to God. The regular influence that falls upon us by the endless flow of books and films and the many inroads into our lives by complex theologies of our day. It's power to please. It's power to entertain and entice the natural man. And ultimately, it's power to blur the lines of truth. To blur the lines of error even to dictate what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior for a person and what is real and what is fantasy. It was the Apostle John who wrote, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So see, nice people are kept in the darkness, are lulled into a stupor of false teaching and false living and practices. And even Christians come under the subtle great power of the world which lures them away from Christ. Now, what I am stressing here is the difficulty it is in believing. It is difficult to believe. It is not just a decision someone makes to believe. Believing is difficult. It needs the power of God, and without the power of God, no one could be saved. If it were not for the power of God to cause us to be born again, none of us could be saved or be able to live the Christian life. We would, be, we would not be able to stand for one moment if it was not for God's power. I love what, what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And he's done this to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For what reason? To obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And then he says this, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So all this is saying that if God has demonstrated all these things, this great surpassing power towards us who believe, it took the power of God for us to believe. And it takes the power of God working in us to stay believing and to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So God's power is life-giving for our salvation and in our daily sanctification. In fact, if you look in verse chapter 2, if you look in, in chapter 4, excuse me, verse number 1, it says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How are you going to do that? How are you going to walk in a manner worthy of God? Are you going to do that in your own power? Or look in verse 17 of chapter 4. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the fertility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
because of the hardness that is in their heart, are you going to be able to uh, deliver yourself from not walking as you used to walk in darkness? Or in chapter 5, it says in verse number 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How are you going to be imitators of God? And verse 2, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. How are you going to do that? And then in chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. How is a child... Uh, who comes to faith in Christ, how are they going to practice by the Spirit's power that it's not going to happen in your own power? It must happen in God's power. So see, believers, the implications of the resurrection is it not only makes believers alive in Christ, it resurrects them spiritually. And it will ultimately resurrect them physically, but it is at work in you. The power of the resurrection is at, as work, is at work in you and me right now. So believers have this power working in them now. So you can do those things after chapter 3. If it were not for the power of God working in believers, we would not have a desire to read the word of God we would not have a desire to pray or the strength to put off sin or to put on righteousness or to do anything else the Lord asks us to do. So you see the apostle here, because this is part of his prayer for the people, the apostle here is not praying that believers see their need for this power, nor is he praying that believers have more power. He is praying that believers would realize the greatness of of God's power that is already at work in them. We don't have to pray for more of what God has. God's already given it to us. It's already there. It's like we don't pray for more of the Spirit. We have all the Spirit. We have to yield ourselves over to the Spirit, and we have to come to the place where we realize and recognize that this power is available to you, that when you get tempt tempted to sin, and sin is, is blaring you in the face. And it's, it's tugging you to do something you know, you know doesn't please Lord. What do you do with that? You say, I have no power to overcome this sin. I'm going to give myself to it. That's what you used to do. But now that you have the resurrection power, you can say no to that sin. You have authority over, like in Romans 6. Sin no longer reigns over you. You can say sin, hey sin, you know what? You don't reign over me anymore. Christ reigns over me. He's my master. He's given me the power to say no to the temptations that come my way. And it will. It was like Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do and to work his good pleasure. That's what God is doing. He's working in you. And matter of fact, that's how you know you're a believer. Is that God is making you uh, into his image where you are growing more and more in understanding what you do with your sin, what you do with temptation, what you do with the lure of the flesh and the temptation of the world and the power of the devil to get you off track. So how great is this power? How much strength is available for the Christian in his daily life? Well, we have all the strength that God gives us we need. The believers are being urged to depend upon this power to realize this inexhaustible source of strength and he prays that we may know fully, may appropriate personally and may learn in experience the meaning, the, me the measureless actually might and the exceeding greatness of the power which God is exerting towards us or in us who believe. So how much power was necessary to take Christ and crucify him, mutilated and disgraced, dead, and to raise him in newness of life, radiant and glorious and triumphant, and place him at the right hand of God at, in the throne of heaven? How much power did it take for that to happen. That same power, 
Paul is saying is ours. If we trust in Christ, if we are members of his body, if we belong to his church, this is the power that God gives us. And with what power are we trying to resist temptation or to put off hindrances or besetting sins to develop a godly character or to bear godly fruit? It cannot be in your own power. You have no power to do that apart from God. No method or power from us or from the world can overcome it. Only the almighty power of God working in the lives of those who seek it from and through Jesus Christ. That Christians do not have to struggle vainly with sin. They do not have to be enslaved to sin, chained by sin, caught in a vicious cycle of sin. Instead, they should realize God's power already at work in them and acknowledge that every single day as you keep in step with the Spirit of God, as the Word of God gets in your heart and your mind and washes you clean, you can, by God's Spirit, overcome those particular obstacles that are all going to be ours and are all part of the process of sanctification. Now, there's one thing that I want to leave you with, and that is an example of someone who came to realize the power of God working amongst, among his people. And his name was King Josephat. Take your Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. King Josephat is a great example. If you've been reading through the Old Testament, you'll find that some of these events that have happened, I guess in my reading through the Old Testament, I have uh, seemed to focus on Chronicles more than any other book and have been learning from it. But if you notice in Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat realized two things. Number one, he wasn't as powerful as he thought. And number two, God was made more powerful than he thought. And if you notice in verse number one, it says, Now it came about, Second Chronicles 20, verse 1, about after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea and Aram. And behold, they are in Hazan, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaim the fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? And then notice what he says. He says, power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O oh God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Then go down to verse number 12. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless. You see that? He recognized two things. Number one, the power and the might of God from the past. And now his own powerlessness before three armies that were coming against him. And if you notice in verse number 12, O Lord, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord in their, with their infants, their wives, and their children. Then in the misty of the assembly, 
the word of God tells us, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of, the son of Benaiah, and the son of Jael, and the son of Mattanai, and the Levite, the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. It's not yours, but God's. And then this is what he told him in verse 16. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up from the ascent of Ziz, and, will, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. In verse 17, you need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And then notice that in verse 20. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Now this is prior to them going. God already told them you're not going to fight. I'm already going to, I've already won the battle for you, but you have to go. And the reason why he had to go and the people had to go is because they had to see what God did for them. And in verse number 22, it says this, and when they began singing and praising the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which had come against Judah, so they were routed for the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Verse 24, when Judah came to the, out, the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground and no one escaped. I think... That day is the day that Jehoshaphat realized the greatness of God's power working among the people of Israel. Now the difference between this and the New Testament is God's power is working in us as we gather together. It's not just working among us, it's working in us. And it's working in us to transform us into the image of of Jesus Christ. Now I thought that that was a way to illustrate that when one realizes the power of God and how God demonstrates that power, we have that power already demonstrated in the resurrection. We have that power demonstrated in the word of God that tells us that God will resurrect our bodies uh, in the future and that will take place. But what about the meantime? Do we believe that God is working and do we realize he's working in us right now for those who believe to overcome sin, to overcome the world, overcome Satan, to overcome everything that would come against us, every hindrance, every enemy, every temptation, every obstacle in our path can be overcome in the power of God. See, Ephesians, Paul wants us to know that. He wants his audience to know that. Why? Because he's heading to chapter 4. And chapter 4 says, here's the doctrine, chapter 1 through 3, chapter 4 through 6, this is how you practice what God's done for you. And if you don't know that, if you don't realize it, you're always stumbling and falling over yourself. See, once you know it and realize it, then you learn to practice it every day in your life that becomes a reality to you and actually you start putting to death sin. You are the one God has made in control by the Spirit of God to put to death sin. You are the one who has the Spirit of God where you can 
have the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the kindness, the goodness of God in you. It's all one fruit given to you by God, and that all comes out as God's working in your life, right? So you see, the battle's the Lord's. It's already won. But he doesn't say sit back and do nothing and just watch as a spectator. He says, now go look and see what God's doing. Go look and put into practice and see God overcome your sin through the power of the Spirit. Go look and see how God intervenes in your behalf when you seek Him and pray to Him and know the power is available to you. Go and see it. And then when you come back, you know what happens? You come back stronger. You come back meaner in a good way. You come back to the place where you're depending on what God says in Scripture about what happened to you. You're not depending on the flesh anymore. You're not depending on nothing the world has to say. The world's filled with deception and lies. You can't depend on any of it. But you can depend on God's truth and what he's done in your behalf. And you could bank on that because it will take place as God says it. And God will, once he saves you by your, his power, will keep you by his power. He promised that. He promised that. Now we have to live by that. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray, Lord, that in this short text that I looked at and the, the context around it, which I'll look at later, Lord, I, I pray as it demonstrates to us how you worked in Christ the power you worked in Christ is the same power that works in us. Lord, enable us. Remove the, the unbelief when it comes to these truths. Lord, and allow us to give ourselves fully to them. Let us be in a sense like Jehoshaphat who saw his weakness but saw the power and the might of God also in what he did in the past in Israel's history. But Lord, you wanted him to see the power. And Lord, you want us to see the power that you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that as we each day live our Christian lives, that we would give ourselves over to the control of the Spirit of God and that we would realize the truth found in your word and that we would overcome by your power, that we would grow in knowledge by your power, that we would develop in all the essential qualities of the Spirit by your power. So, Lord... Allow us to see it. Allow us to experience it because it's already ours. You have worked in those who believe. If someone, Lord, here doesn't believe, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would come and they would trust in you as their Lord and Savior. I pray you would save people, Lord. Help us to see the power in you saving people and us being the instruments to share the gospel with those and see them come to Christ. And then, Lord, allow us to see the sanctifying process that the Spirit of God does in people's lives. Help us to see that. And, Lord, as we even put these truths into our own personal lives, that we would see the victories over the present sins that are in our life right now. Sin is saying to us, you can't get rid of me, but God is saying to us, put the sin to death. I pray, Lord, that we would do that and that we would have victory over old sins that have been keeping us down. And Lord, I pray as we see the victory over these sins, we would praise you and that we would give you glory and honor. And I just ask you, Lord, that as we pro progress into this book of Ephesians, that all the things that are there would be ours and we would see the power of God in each one of them. And so, Lord, today, as we even meet together to partake of the Lord's table, make us ready to be worthy servants because of the blood of Christ, to enter into the eating and drinking of the elements that, again, focus in on your death and the washing away of sin and, Lord, of your incarnation and coming into this world and then, Lord, we know it all led to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to prepare ourselves for that this morning as we partake of these elements. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, let's just take a few minutes. Our men who are serving this morning, just uh, please come forward and let's take a few minutes and just examine ourselves and make ourselves ready for the Lord's table. I do just want to say a few things about it. Why should we partake of the Lord's table? Uh, no, number one, uh, it's, it's commanded by Christ to do this. Uh, it also confirms, uh, it confirms our belief and our true interest in Christ. Uh, it shows us that we no longer belong to the world, but we belong to the body of Christ. And so, really, the Lord's table is only for followers of Christ. And followers of Christ are exhorted from the Word of God to examine themselves, to confess their sins, to discern what's going on within the body in their own life, to declare uh, what has happened to them, that they have a different standing now before God than they had before, to be thankful, to be joy-filled, to know that they're glory-bound, and that we are actually coming to a banquet table to sit down at a peace meal with Christ himself, with God himself, because we have been made at peace with by the blood of the Lamb. It also declares our belief in the new covenant, in his blood. It declares our belief in the physical death of Christ. And it declares our belief in the return of Christ. And of course, these are the things that we think about when we are partaking of the Lord's table. And so let's take a few minutes and whatever the Lord is prompting you to do in your own life to prepare yourself for receiving the elements, please do that. And remember, it is only for believers, so if you have not trusted in Christ yet, uh, then please refrain from partaking of the Lord's table. If you have trusted in Christ and you are even visiting with us, we have an open, uh, a close communion uh, in the sense where you can partake of the elements with us today if you know Christ, have followed him in believer's baptism and are visiting with us today. Uh, so let's just take a few minutes and examine ourselves and we'll be ready to pass out the elements.